Three, two. Welcome back to a very special episode of LA Pop Potential. My name is Chauncey Talese, and I run out with the Super Bowl champion LA Rams for LAFBnetwork.com. I am joined today by one of the greatest film and film and TV authors, Matthew Matt Zoller Seitz, for his new book, The Deadwood Bible. How are you, sir? <coughs> Hello, Matt. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry. Okay, I'm doing great. Um, first of all, congratulations on finishing the book. I know it's been um, a long process for you because I remember you announced it, I think, like in, I feel like in 2016, 2017? Yes, it was. No, it was actually uh, 2018. Uh, and um, no, I'm sorry. It was 2019. It was 2019. And uh, what happened was I had wanted to do it before then. Uh, my wife, Nancy, had been diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, she was in remission and they told her there was no evidence of cancer. And so I went ahead and did the Kickstarter and uh, raised the money necessary to not just print the book, but to hire a staff of people to do it the right way. And um, and then we were sort of starting the production process. And then she got a terminal diagnosis in uh, December of 2019 and she died the following April. And then, of course, we were in the middle of COVID at that point. And uh, at, at the same time that she was declining from her cancer, my father was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, which was also terminal. And he died in November <laughs> of 2020. And also my mother, uh, who had a whole lot of problems, including, you know, she was a, a on and off again drug addict. Uh, she, she got into a lot of trouble with that late in life. And, uh, I had to get her out of the house that she was in and into a home. And then she died in April of 2021. 20, uh, and so it was just, you know, a string of like three major deaths in 12 years. And also I had five children to support and, uh, you know, grief is, uh, something that, kind of becomes a full-time job in addition to what other what other jobs you have and uh so you know the process uh, of production on the book slowed it just had to and i and i actually sent out an email saying that we were going to delay production by a full year when uh nancy got her diagnosis but then uh there were these other deaths and and other attendant problems including uh probate battles and in both of my parents estates with people like predators coming in and trying to take things mm -hmm. And uh, so it was me and my brother battling that stuff. And um, but we finally got it done. We got it done with help from a lot of people. A lot of people worked on this. The journalist, uh, Jeremy Fassler, who's been my transcriptionist on almost, I believe, actually every one of my books. Uh, he's he's been a transcriber and he also does work for me at Vulture. Uh, he he came on board and and did not just transcription but also or helping organize material and he ended up uh, uh, collaborating with me on three chapters of the biographical portion of the book and then we had um, Alan Scherstel, who is a longtime editor of the Village Boys Film section came on as the as the text editor and he edited the entire thing it's a much better book as a result of Alan being involved and then and then I had you know part of the regular team that works on my books at Abrams, Eric Klopfer, who's a brilliant editor who I've been working with ever since the Wes Anderson collection, and Max Dalton, who's illustrated all of those books, plus Mad Men Carousel. And then there's a designer named Liam Flanagan, who's worked on all pretty much every project I've ever done for Abrams. Uh, he designed the book, and I think it's a lovely design, a kind of modern but old in the way that the show is. 
so yeah, so we finally got it done, and now I've got five thousand books in my garage, and we're <laughs> trying to ship them out. <laughs> That's where we're at. Well, yeah, I'm, I am. It's really awesome to hear that you're able to get the book done in spite of all those losses, and I'm very sorry for those. Um, and your process of doing the book, what's been the mo- what was the most surprising part of the process in terms of who you interviewed, what you were able to get out of them? Um, well, gosh, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that, because to me, this this is the most satisfying. It's been the most difficult book I've ever had to do because of the personal circumstances, but also the most creatively satisfying and, and maybe in some ways innovative for me. Uh, I, I This book was made in a process that was very different from any other book that I've ever worked on, and it had to be. Basically, what I had to do was trust trust other people to to break off pieces of it and kind of uh, do their own thing with it and trust that it would fit in with the larger picture. And I'll give you one example of that, which is um, the middle section, kind of the, the guts of the book is this biography of David Milch, which has emphasis on the creation and production of Deadwood, the aftermath of the cancellation and the, the movie and uh, his diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So it's kind of David's entire life story with Deadwood being the thing that it's really all tied to. And um, I had uh, started writing the book, you know, with the childhood and adolescence and college chapter, which is chapter one. And I was interviewing, you know, the Milch family, Rita Milch, David's wife, and his two daughters, Elizabeth and Olivia, were incredibly forthcoming and generous in giving me biographical detail, but also biographical materials that they had gathered for use in in David's memoir, Life's Work, which is coming out in September. So they they basically gave me access to, I don't know if it was everything, but it sure seemed like everything. I mean, like almost anything that's significant that uh, they thought could be of use to me, they gave it to me. They gave me access to it, which is extraordinary, including Rita wrote uh, a, a whole separate memoir about her life with David called My Life with David, which was going to be an appendix in life's work, and they ended up cutting it. So I, I, got, a, a, I got her permission to use sections of her memoir. So there's, a, there's points in the book where it's kind of like when you're watching Goodfellas and suddenly it's Henry Hill narrating and then suddenly Karen takes over. Mm-hmm. So there's points where you're kind of seeing, you're seeing David through the eyes of his wife, Rita, which, which is... Uh, um, I don't know how many other biographies have done that, but that was purely just a result of the Milch family trusting me with uh, with stuff that, you know, hadn't seen the light of day before. Um, and then also, you know, a lot of other writers and producers and actors and, you know, they gave me notes on stuff. And it got to the point where what I was doing was instead of just doing what I would usually do, which is email a piece of something and say, hey, what, what do you think about this? Is this correct? Is there anything other information that I need? I just decided to hell with it. And I just started sending people a link to read the Google doc that I was working on the book in. And I originally had them as commenters. And then at a certain point, I just thought, this is kind of absurd. Like they're going to leave a comment and and it's going to say, hey, uh, the chronology of this event is incorrect. This thing actually happened after this other thing. I just made them editors and I just told them, like, just go ahead and change it. Because I'm going to see it's going to be in a different color anyway. So at one point I had, you know, David, I, I had um, uh, Rita Milch, Elizabeth Milch, Jody Worth, who was a writer and producer on the show. Uh, Greg Feinberg, who was an executive producer on the show. Um, and then Alan Scherstel, 
um, Jeremy Fassler. I mean, there were there were probably at one point there was probably 10 different people who had editorial privileges on the manuscript. And if they did something that I didn't agree with or that I wanted it to be back the way I did it, I just changed it back. But for the most part, I left it alone. And like in a weird way, I think it was kind of like I would imagine it's probably a bit like writing a television show. <laughs> you know, like, you, probably, you know, what the, you know what the story is. And then like the way David Milch used to work on Deadwood was, you know, uh, David rewrote everything, almost everything, probably 97 percent of what you of, of what appeared on that show. David rewrote in some way, but they would plot out a show and then he would say, like, all right, the scene where uh, Joni Stubbs and, and Cy Tolliver talk about this. Uh, Jody, why don't you take a pass at that? And then Jody Worth would go off and write it, and then he'd bring it back to David. And if David, you know, David rewrote it if he thought there was something else that needed to be done with it, but if he didn't, he'd leave it alone. Um, so you know, uh, so that was that was the big discovery for me was that this was a communal book. Like I was the person who had the vision for it originally, and I was certainly guiding it in a in a sort of an overall sense. But it a community of people associated with Deadwood and with David Milch made this book. You know, I and many times I felt like I was a conduit for 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 it as much as I was the primary author, and it was a good feeling. And you know, to abandon one's ego in that way was something I'd never done before. But not only did the circumstances demand it, I think it's a much better book as a result of my doing that. No, it's actually it's very unique. I've never heard of a book written like in that, that particular style. Um, what's your relationship to the show? What made you want to oh write a book God. about Deadwood? Because I know you and Seppenwall have done an incredible book, The Soprano Sessions, which I've read cover to cover twice. Once with a rewatch, oh. once just, just to read it. Um, you guys also did TV The Book, which I highly recommend. That book rules. Um, and then your other two book, the two of your other books, The Oliver Stone Experience and Wes Anderson Collection, are, are largely conversational. What made you want to do a book on Deadwood? Well, Deadwood is, you know, of all of those big dramas from that period, Deadwood is the one that is the, I had the most strong personal connection to. And I and I wrote about it a little bit in uh, the introduction to the Deadwood Bible. And I, there's also a companion volume, by the way, which is called Dreams of Deadwood, which is uh, a collection of my photographs from visiting the set during the shooting of the movie. And it's and it also includes very much in the spirit of how the Deadwood Bible was written. Um, there's photos that other people took. There's photos by Regina Carrado, who is a writer and uh, executive producer. Um, Elizabeth and Rita Milch gave some photos. Earl Brown, W. Earl Brown, Keone Young, uh, Janie Bryant, the costume designer. Um, so that was kind of a group effort. But uh, there's a much longer version, a, a sort of account of my relationship to the show in that companion book, the picture book. But just to sum it up, um, I was at the Star Ledger when Deadwood debuted. I was on the I had been on the Sopranos beat. Uh, I was watching a lot of TV, and also my son had just been born, James, who just graduated from high school. Wow! And uh, yeah, and and James is a baby, and my first wife Jennifer was uh, uh, breastfeeding him. She would get up in the middle of the night for night feedings, and she had uh, the DVR set to record Deadwood. And I had watched the first couple of episodes of Deadwood. Um, I liked it. I respected it. It was a bit dense. And also I was finishing post-production on a movie that I had written and directed. And so I didn't commit to watching the show. It was something where it's like, I'll get around to it when I get to it. And then um, Jennifer came to me in the kitchen one morning after she had watched the episode uh, where Wild Bill Hickok is assassinated. 
called Here is a Man, which is one of the greatest episodes of TV I've ever seen. And mm -hmm. I hadn't watched it yet at that point. And she came to me and said, I have two very important things to say to you. <laughs> the first is that Deadwood may be the greatest drama in the history of American television. And I said, what's the other thing? And she said, your son's first word is going to be cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to, I, I told David Milch that the first time I met him and he laughed and he said, I'm pleased as punch about the first thing, but not so much about the second. <laughs> For the record, James's first word, uh, first word was dada. <laughs> so that didn't actually, we didn't actually have to deal with the other thing, but um uh, so I thought, well, oh, my God, if she thinks this highly of it, I'd better catch up. So I watched uh, three and four, and I, I agreed that it was pretty much the greatest thing I'd ever seen at that point. And, and I looked from that point on, and I, and I became obsessed with it. And it was just, it was a lot of things for me. It was partly that I'm such a big fan of the Western as a genre. I have so many fond memories of watching uh, so many Westerns from so many different periods in, in film history, yet at the same time, I was always bothered by the psychological and philosophical uh, constructs around the Western. I mean, it's such a masculine, macho genre. A lot of it's about suppression of emotion. Uh, what we now call toxic masculinity is kind of at the core of a lot of uh, movie Westerns, uh, particularly some of the revisionist ones, which got really down and dirty. Um, Clint Eastwood, particularly. And, and I love e a lot of Eastwood's movies and everything Sergio Leone ever made. I love Um but uh, there was a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know racism and misogyny and just sort of a lot of it is unexamined even in the things that think they're examining it they're really not um, and you there are some movies where I think there's that's not true like I think McCabe and Mrs Miller by Robert Altman which is a huge influence on Deadwood and that's uh, supposedly that's David Milch's favorite western and uh, my darling Clementine some of the John Ford films. Uh, uh, I think uh, interrogate some of their assumptions, but Deadwood was really almost an anti-Western in a lot of ways. And David Milch was very committed to the idea that they not do the cliched type of stuff that you see in every Western. So the pilot episode ends with a quick draw where a guy gets blasted off his horse, but that's really the last time in the entire show where you see a kind of a traditional face down in the street uh, with of guys with guns. Um, and they don't really do it after that. And you don't see people riding horses. They never leave the town. Um, it is a very masculine show, and that's true to period because the the camp Deadwood in the 1870s uh, was uh, there was a ratio of about 20, 20 men to one woman, and uh, the women were often involved in sex work. Uh, and it was very and the character of Alma Garrett, who's a New York socialite, who's kind of loosely based on oh a kind of a Henry James heroine. Um, She's she's not based on anybody real. And I and I don't believe there's historians know of anyone in Deadwood who's like her. It was mostly women who were working in brothels. Um, but uh, there's a lot of women on the show in relation to that ratio. Like like there's, you know, probably more major characters, not just supporting, but major uh, women than uh, uh, almost any series uh, on HBO that was being made that was in that vein. Like, certainly there's more interesting, complicated lead female characters on Deadwood than there were on The Wire or The Sopranos. Um, and uh, David cared very much about uh, the status of women in the town. And he had a strong staff. You know, he was David became pretty famous for hiring and mentoring uh, women and giving them their break in the business. And 
Regina Corrado, who went on to be one of the supervising producers on Son of, Sons of Anarchy, she got started there. Um, and Nicole Beatty, who basically ran The Walking Dead and its spinoffs, uh, she got her first writing job through David. Elizabeth Sarnoff, who went on to write for Lost and is now on Barry, got her start through David. Um, and I'm sure that that had a lot to do with the sensitivity with which women were portrayed on the show. And I would also say, just from my own perspective, I was struck by the spiritual quality of Deadwood. Like, I don't just mean that they talk about God and sin and redemption and Jesus and hell and stuff, you know, because certainly other shows have done that. But I mean, it feels like matters of the spirit are as important as matters of the flesh. And, you, and there are points where the town of Deadwood feels like this living entity, like almost like you're watching science fiction, like something like Solaris where the planet is alive, you know? That's what it feels like. like. It feels like there's this energy field surrounding the town, and it's it's like the the planet in Forbidden Planet or something, <laughs> and it's making or the island in the Tempest, honestly, um, where it's this energy field. It's almost like the Force, and it's kind of flowing through all of the characters, and some of them channel that energy for good, and others for evil. Yeah, and Milch does it a lot with like Dayton Kelly talking to horses, and a lot of people talking to animals. That's a recurring theme in a lot of his work too. And that's uh, yeah. speaks to your point about how Deadwood is this vibrant place where everything seems to be alive, even if it's um, even if it's uh, someone just talking to like the the trees or the rocks or something like that. And the thing that separated it for me, like, because I've rewatched all the big HBO dramas a lot, and it's the one that's like the most lyrical. Like, even when Swearingen's on one, it's like poetry. And I've never seen a show like that. No one's really tried to emulate it since, or come close to anyway. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. And and I there's a part where <clears throat> there's the end of the book. I'm going to read you a little piece of the book here. Uh, the part of the book where uh, the end of the book is me visiting David in a memory care facility, which is where he lives now, because he you know he has Alzheimer's and he's he's still capable of being lucid and and attentive and everything. But he also has that thing that I mean, you you probably know people who've had that disease and mm -hmm. and you kind of alternate between like they they're incredibly detailed and extraordinary in their recall about certain things, but then they'll try mm -hmm. to pay for lunch four times. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind yeah. of where David is at, but, but, but he was very, very lucid about the creative uh, aspects of it. And um, so I'll read you this one part, which is I'm in the room with him and Rita and it says, uh, I spoke to Ray McKinnon about the character of Reverend Smith. By the way, I'm mentioned in this chapter as simply the man, because <laughs> I was trying to distance myself a little bit from it. And also because Dave First. didn't remember who I was. Sure. Despite my having had a, a very... Uh, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Despite my having had... Uh, despite my having had a, a, a pretty consistent relationship with David from... 2005 to the present day, David no longer recognizes me. Sure. And he no longer recognizes most people. And there were some, there were a few moments where I wasn't even 100% sure. I think he might have forgotten who Rita was a few times. So it's pretty advanced by this point. Mm -hmm. um, but I said, I spoke to Ray McKinnon about the character of Reverend Smith. St. Paul was an influence on what happened to that character, right? And David mm -hmm. says, yeah, things were very much in flux at that time. And frankly, I didn't know whether Ray trusted me, but he went along and he was wonderful. 
it's a great job you have, you know? I mean, the complexity of the dynamic between you and the person you're interviewing is. You play hardball right away. He kept, like, commenting on my interviewing as I was interviewing him, which I thought was interesting. And I said, only with you, David. But, but about Ray, he was saying that the historical research indicates that the real Smith may have been murdered by road agents. And David says, really? Which is, you know, David already knew that. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, like, he doesn't know that that's uh, something that he already, you know, he had done many discussions with the writers about the real people. And I said, yes, outside of Deadwood, um, he had left to preach. And I believe his last words were a note on his door, something to the effect of I've gone to whatever the next town is to preach. I'll be back tomorrow at the end of the day. Don't worry about me. The Lord will protect me. And then he was murdered. And there's a monument to him on Spearfish Road. But you changed your mind about that and decided that he would instead gradually deteriorate, right? And he says, yeah. There's, uh, and I said, did you think about the spirituality of Deadwood? What sort of perspective did you have on that? And David said that there is a basic law which had been transgressed upon at the very beginning of the town and that those who accomplished a good deal accepted that as the truth and just went forward. They carried with them the sinfulness and accepted it as part of the prerogative of the town. I kind of wish we'd had a chance to do a little bit more. And I said, so it almost sounds like in a horror movie when a great crime has been committed and people are haunted, like turn of the screw or something like that. And David says, exactly. And I said, is it fair to say that there's an element of a ghost story or horror film? And David says, yes. And I said, what would be the original sin? Would it be what we did to the Native Americans? There was a knock at the door. Excuse me a sec, David said. He opened the door. On the other side stood a nurse practitioner with a small paper cup of medicine. Hi, David, she said. Oh, aren't you kind, he said. Thank you. David looked at his guest, then down at the cup. I have no idea what this is, he said, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> Just take it. Believe me, Rita said. Let me put on your suspenders. She told the man, this guy's got no ass. His pants can't stay up without suspenders, even with a belt. He's too skinny from the <laughs> waist down. Rita found a pair of suspenders and helped David put them on. David smiled, then said to his guest, it's clear that this is the best girl that you've encountered this month. <laughs> the man said, do you want help with that? Rita said, I got it. And then I, I continued, we were talking about the spirituality of Deadwood. And this idea that there's an element of horror or a curse or something. Yeah, David said, lying back on the bed beside his wife, one elbow on the mattress, resting the side of his head on his hand. The sense that one had that there is a sin which has been generally accepted among the townsmen and that they learned to maneuver around. He pointed downstairs at the lobby. I can't tell you how many ghosts walk up to me when I'm downstairs. They accepted it as a curse. So the next year is going to be very interesting and in how that's going to be dealt with. And I wasn't clear on what he meant by the next year, if he meant our next year or if he felt like he was still writing Deadwood and there was going to be a next year of Deadwood. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know what he meant. And um, and uh, he chuckled. And I said, I don't believe there are any scenes anywhere in the show where people are in a church. Why? And, he, and David said, I think there's a sense of impiety in that they that they acknowledge as part of their heritage and that they try to live into without further transgressing. Okay, this happened, nothing to be done. And that's why you should write this script where the individuals live into the acceptance of that, and I'll write, but save my son. I don't know what he meant by that, but that's what he said. And then I, I said, don't you think the people of Deadwood found a sort of redemption in the community? And David said, yes. And um, 
And I said, when you spoke of the original sin, what is the original sin in your opinion on Deadwood? And David said, that which transgresses against the common good, which would be forgiven, but which transgressing against the common good. And I said, is it selfishness? And David said, yes, yes. Acting in one's own interest without thinking about the needs of others? Yes, David said. Wow. So that's almost go. he almost sounds like a citizen of Deadwood. <laughs> well, very much so. Very much so. And that's, you know, that's the thing is like David, you know, remember now, remember where David <clears throat> comes from. David was a was a <clears throat> I've got stuff in this book that no one, either no one has heard before, or certainly that no one has ever gone into in such detail. The, the, the level of frankness that people brought to these interviews with me is kind of off the chart. Like, I've never experienced anything like it. It was like a lot of them, there was like unburdening. There's a lot of people who talk about their own struggles with drugs and alcohol and, and you know, run-ins with the law and abuse and neglect. I mean, there's a community of wounded people that David surrounded himself with because he was one of them. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, he was molested when he was a child at a summer camp several years in a row when he was a little kid, like in elementary school. And that I think really profoundly shaped him or, or, you know, kind of warped his consciousness in a lot of ways. And um, his best friend died in a drunk driving accident. And that also had a very profound sort of transformative effect on him. And that's the thing that turned him into a writer. And, you know, he's often written about abuse, childhood abuse, particularly, but, you know, abuse of women, abuse of children, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse is very much a subject of his of his work. And 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 the constructions around the mentalities of men that uh, that uh, not only enable them to but encourage them to be uh, trying to subjugate women and, and children. Um, that's central to David's work, and it has been ever since the days when he wrote for Hill Street Blues. And then what happens is this whole time that he's in the business in the 80s and 90s, he's on drugs. He's he's doing you know mainly Vicodin, but he was a heroin addict earlier in his life. And then he switched to methadone, and he continued to do whatever pharmaceuticals crossed his path. And there a lot was of that a of having a bad back, because I remember that being a huge thing with him, right? Because he would lie on his back and dictate scripts sometimes. Is that true? Yeah, he had a, he's had back problems ever since he was a little kid. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, but I'm not sure I, I wouldn't ascribe all of the drug use to that. Certainly the Vicodin and other mm -hmm. similar medications that were sure. that were, you know, those were tied into back pain medicine mm -hmm. uh, to back, back pain treatment rather. Uh, but, you know, the heroin, the methadone, the alcohol, uh, the you know, the the barbiturates, you know, uppers and downers and, you know, hallucinogens and all this other stuff. I. I don't know that you can, I mean, I have back pain and I'm not doing, sure. all that stuff. you know, like there's other, no, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But, but then he goes to rehab and what I'm leading to is David, you know, David is a Jewish man from Baltimore and he quotes the new Testament and Jesus like all the time and, and is very much in this sort of new Testament. Um, you know, he always says, St. Paul is my guy. And, you know, St. Paul was somebody who was complicit in the persecution of Jesus and who, you know, saw the light and 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 sort of re, uh, turned around and began trying to spread the message of Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of characters in David Milch's work that have that sort of an arc where they start out as kind of the scum of the earth. And they very gradually do the hard work of trying to change themselves to the degree that that's possible. So David definitely was trying to tell that story. And once he went through rehab, he did several stints in rehab before it finally stuck. And uh, once he got through that, 
I think, and that's when he makes Deadwood. He was still struggling with addiction and it was really debilitating all the way through the end of NYPD Blue. It was only in the last few years of NYPD Blue that even started to get that under control. And by the time he makes the pilot of Deadwood, that he writes it and starts doing auditions, he's only been out of rehab for about two and a half years, right? So, Mm -hmm. So that's very much in his mind. And like, what happens when you go through AA? Well, anybody who will tell you, is, you know, you've got to abandon your ego and abandon your vanity and abandon the idea that you control anything. And you want to let the kind of the forces sort of flow through you and connect you to other people and be open and be giving and be kind and all this other stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's where he's coming from with Deadwood and with the construction of the town, where it's like you can kind of make Deadwood into whatever you want to try to make it into. And it's going to sort of conform to whatever the strongest energy is. And and that's why when George Hurst rolls into town in season three, I think that's why that's the darkest of the three seasons, because he's the cruelest, the most powerful, the most wealthy of any character on that show. And he's the least interested in exploring his himself. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that characters are good on that show in direct relation to how much they're willing to look inward. Cy Tolliver is not a very good character because he resists any attempts to make him look inward. Swearingen actually uh, transforms quite a bit because he is open to that. Exactly. And his final line in the movie speaks to that. It's a culmination of Al Swearingen and what he's learned. Like, it's an incredible last line for a character. Oh, it's fantastic. And there's a lot of great lines in that movie. I like. I know some people, <clears throat> some people love the movie. Some people don't like it at all. And it's then great. some people are just, kind of mixed. I think it's tremendous. And I also think that, you know, <clears> yes, I would have preferred an entire season of Deadwood, but that was never going to happen. No. And it's kind of a miracle that we even got the movie, mm-hmm. um, especially given David was rapidly succumbing to Alzheimer's as it was being written. And he needed a lot of help to stay focused. And, you know, uh, Nicole Beatty and Regina Corrado and Rita and Elizabeth helped a lot with the writing of that show. And he had other people coming in, like Nick Pizzolatto came in for a few weeks to help out. And uh, so it is sort of Frankenstein together in the way that my book is, honestly. <laughs> Um, but, you know, just as I would hope that people who read this book will go, yeah, that's Matt. It sounds like Matt, even though it was me plus like a dozen people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the Deadwood movie is sort of like that. Like it's undeniably a David Milch production and it has his voice. But there's a lot of people who are sort of carrying him because he couldn't he couldn't stand up without help, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. You know? Right. Um, and, uh, but I, yeah, I love the movie and I've seen the movie several times and I find it tremendously moving and particularly that last section where the snow begins to fall. Oh my God. I know. And waltzing Matilda is playing. Are you kidding me? I know. What, like what a final note to go out on for Milch. Uh, Cause I mean, even after Deadwood, he had John from Cincinnati, which was polarizing to say the least and luck, which was befallen by unfortunate luck, even though I really enjoyed it. I, yeah, and luck was a tough one. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the thing is, you know, David, I, I don't know how much you know about David's production methods, but David David was always a director in addition to being a writer. Mm-hmm. He's sort of a weird hybrid of a director and a producer, even though he's never had a directing credit on anything. But what <laughs> he would do is he would write, he would write pages. Often, you know, they would start out a, a season being slightly ahead, and then within a few mo- a weeks or months, they would be basically he would be writing pages the day before they were going to shoot them. Mm -hmm. And then by the time they got to the end of the season, not only is he writing pages on the day, 
sometimes he's going onto the set and he doesn't have any pages at all. And he's devising the scenes on the fly and saying, all right, now you say this. And then how about you say this? And then this other person says this, I got that great. And then he leaves. I mean, <laughs> really, I mean, it's, 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 it's insanity uh, running a production that way, but that was how he did it. And, uh, you know, it, basically the way that people think John Cassavetes made movies, that's how David Milton <laughs> actually made television, right? The misconception about Cassavetes that he and the actors were pulling everything out of their butts is not true. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of times David and the and the cast of Deadwood were, in fact, kind of doing that. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he also he uh, would do a thing where he would get deep into a season. Like they didn't know what the story was going to be. They, they had a general idea. And this is true of most TV. Like people don't understand the, the extent of improvisation and how it's baked into making television. Right. You know, that even if you, and people like, didn't they have a plan? It's like, yeah, they always have a plan, but then things happen and they have to come up with a different plan. That's exactly. always how it goes. Like anybody who's ever worked on any kind of show ever at any point in television history will tell you, yeah, you get to a certain point and you are kind of pulling it out of your butt. You right. kind of right. are. You, I mean, you know, you know and, and a lot of it has to do with like, you discover that an actor that you hoped would be able to do a certain thing is actually not good at doing that thing. And you got to write something else. And, and you know, and, and maybe an actor gets sick. An actor gets arrested. An actor dies. A producer, you know, develops a drug problem or relapses or something. Or mm. there's inclement weather that ruins your plans to shoot something a particular way. And you don't have any days left in the schedule. So you have to write a different kind of scene. These things happen. And but they happen more often on David Milch's productions because the entire thing was so ephemeral. And he is devising things in collaboration with the actors. There's a scene in. Uh, do you remember the scene in season one? where the Reverend Smith, who is deteriorating from his uh, brain tumor, mm -hmm. he goes over to Bullock and Star's hardware store and he says he doesn't recognize them. Right. Do you remember that scene? Yes, isn't that? I think it's in, is it in Woo? Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. And oh, um, yeah, and he, uh, uh, let me see if I can find this here. Uh, yeah, he talks about, um, uh, you know, this was a classic example of a scene that was um, pulled, uh, sort of devised on the fly. Like it was, you know, he often would do a thing where like he would be talking to another writer or to an actor and mm -hmm. they would come up and, and just suddenly he would get an idea or the actor would get an idea or the two of them would sort of hit on something together. And then David would suddenly call a, a, a AD or somebody over and go, do we have this actor and that actor on the set? No. Can you call them and see how fast they can get here? And we're going to shoot a scene. And then he would run to the writer's bungalow and he'd write a scene in an hour. And then they would shoot it. And and some of the very best scenes in the entire show were, were written like that. And like there's um uh there's a scene where uh oh god, it's a scene where he comes to uh uh Bullock and Stall's Saul's hardware store, and I'll just read you this section here. Okay. So um so episode 10, Mr. Wu, written by freelancer Brian McDonald and directed by Daniel Minahan, contains a magic Deadwood moment built around Reverend Smith, one that never would have occurred if not for Milch's non-standard process. The scene where Smith visits Bullock and Star's hardware store and admits he's having trouble recognizing him. 
Minahan and McKinnon had already generated a fair amount of Smith material for the episode, including moments at the gym in which the Reverend is entranced by the saloon piano player and the cavorting customers and sex workers around him. Quote, I think by the time he went to the gym, he'd lost all sense of what decorum was and manners, and he just followed some of his, I shouldn't say baser, because that's not the word, but the muse that gave him pleasure, said McKinnon. And the women and their joyfulness in what is what they saw is what he saw. I think he saw everybody as a child of God, so he didn't think about women who sold their bodies as being bad people or see them as damaged. After shooting those scenes, co-executive producer Greg Feinberg sent McKinnon home. But Feinberg describes how a meal directly after this with some of the writers in their trailer led to a discussion about the character's mental condition and their appreciation for McKinnon's performance. There was agreement that they should ask Milch to write an additional scene for Smith. Feinberg saw Milch in the thoroughfare and made the request. And this is now this is Feinberg talking. Mm-hmm. David goes, why don't you call Ray and see if he's available? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, see if he's available. When? See if he's available tonight. This is like four in the afternoon. We had a late lunch and we were going to do another scene that night at the hardware store with Bullock and Star. So he asks me, are Bullock and Star here? Because he wasn't always aware of everything that was happening. Who's aware all the time? I was like, yeah, they're here. And he said, call Ray and see if he's available. I have an idea. For tonight? He's like, yeah, for tonight. So I call Ray and he says, I'll get in the car and come over, which is what happened all the time. Actors had to be on call all the time for Deadwood. So he hops in his car. He's heading over to us. And Dave goes into his trailer and starts writing. An hour and a half or so later, he calls me over and he goes, okay, I got the scene and Ray's on his way up. He hands me the scene. It's like five pages. And I read it and I told him, David, I have to say, if I ever wrote a scene like this in my entire life, the second I finished it, I would frame it and never write another word as long as I live. (laughs) In the scene, Smith enters the hardware store and says, I'm in a quandary, gentlemen. Are you Messrs. Bullock and Star?" Then he explains that he is unable to recognize them as such. This scene hits a very different way, don't you think, now that we know what happened to David, Mm -hmm. right? I have various ailments, and I suppose this is a further ailment, but of what sort, I don't know. And I'm afraid if you are devils, I suppose it would be the type of shape you would take. And if you are not devils, then I am simply losing my mind. And with my other ailments, and afraid. Bullock and Star reassure him that they are who he thinks they are, then state their birthplaces. You're here with friends, Bullock says. Yes, Smith says, beaming. Yes, I feel that now. And I have various ailments of which we all suffer. At the end, Bullock says, may we walk you back to your tent, sir? Smith accepts the escort and they leave together. Then comes an echo of Smith's line from the pilot. The Lord is our final comfort, but it's a solace having friends. An evening stroll with friends, Smith says. I would so enjoy that. Let's go then, Bullock says. As Bullock closes the door, Behind them, we hear Smith say, Mr. Swearingen's saloon has a new piano. Greg Feinberg continues, we told Tim Oliphant and John Hawks that we're going to do this whole other thing than what they thought they were going to do. At that point, everyone's kind of used to it. So Ray arrives and they're working on the scene. Dave's explaining what's going on and it's just like, oh my God, this scene's going to be unbelievable. And then they do the whole thing. We get it up on its feet and then we call the crew in and Dan says to the crew, We're going to show you all the scene and then we'll send the actors off and you'll light it and then we'll shoot it. So the crew gathers around inside the hardware store, right? Kind of all around in an L shape to get the actors in for the scene. And then Dan calls action and the guys rehearse. They just did the whole scene one time all the way through. They get to the end and Dan says, okay, cut. 
and you don't hear a thing except a sniffle here and there. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it see it speaks to even though how a Deadwood production can be chaotic, how much the actors revere their time on the show. Because anytime I've read anything about Deadwood, they always just it seems like they're beaming the entire time talking about it. Like Jim Beaver, especially, always talks reverentially about it. Um, anytime they because a lot of the Deadwood actors would go on to do like either Sons of Anarchy or Justified at various points, and they all would just like would go out of their way to talk about Deadwood. And I've never really seen a show like that in a long time. No, and it's funny. That's actually one of the recurring gags in the book. I, every, pretty much every single actor on this show, whether it was a major part, a minor part, or just a cameo, or even as an extra, they all said it was the best experience they'd ever had artistically. For all the chaos and all of the uncertainty that that came with David Milch's process, everyone agreed that they never felt as fully, as fully understood and as fully utilized and as completely seen as they did working on Deadwood. And, and Paula Malcolmson, uh, in one, I did a couple of interviews with her, and one of them she said, um, we were talking about the post-Deadwood period, and she didn't have a whole lot to say about most of the things she'd done after that, which isn't to say that she doesn't like some of the sure. things she's been in. It's just they're not dead. And she said, and <laughs> I know, she said, she said, I'm sure, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something mm -hmm. along the lines of like, I know that all these other showrunners who have, who you know, they have Deadwood actors on the show because they love Deadwood and they want to work with people who are on Deadwood. I'm sure they get sick and tired of hearing us talk about how the greatest experience we ever had was Deadwood and nothing's ever <laughs> going to measure up. But she's like, I was like, well, I, you know, what? Do you, how do you feel about them feeling that way? And she's like, I'm like, and she made a jerk off motion with her hand. She's like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it was the best, you know. Exactly. Malcolm, Paula Malcolm said great. She's 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 very, very tricksy like like she's, you know, mm -hmm. I will say one thing I will say, like, you know, I'm proud of this book. I, I, I'm going to try not to brag on it too much, but I'm very happy with the turnout. Please do. One, th one thing one thing that I will tell you is it is beyond a doubt of all the making of books that have ever been written. This has the most profanity. I would expect without no question. less. Without question. <laughs> Dayton Cali, Dayton Cali alone is responsible for about a quarter of it. <laughs> I, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. It's like literally every fifth word is "fuck" with Dayton. You know, all his quotes, and you know, you get to the. You know, it's funny. And my editor said, "Do you think we really need every f bomb and every quote?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we're leaving that." Yeah, we're it's a Deadwood that. book. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the huge hooks early, early on when it was actually airing was just how many uh, sea suckers there were. Like that was a recurring bit with like anything <laughs> anyone talking about Deadwood. Like they brought they brought it back <laughs> and reclaimed love, it. Well, and I love the. Um, there's a moment in season uh, season two where Walcott is talking to um, uh, uh, E. B. Farnham, and he says. Uh, I can't remember uh, what he says exactly, but uh, is that your way of, Oh no, uh, Farnham, I believe quotes some Roman, uh, some famous sort of phrase from Roman history. And, uh, and Walcott says, is it, is, so is it, is, so are you trying to tell me I'm shit out of luck? <laughs> and, Farnham, and Farnham says, did they talk that way then? <laughs> you know, which is kind of a little meta joke on people mm -hmm. saying, you know, criticizing the profanity on Deadwood as being ahistorical. It's like, yeah, it's ahistorical. I mean, it was funny because da David was very self-conscious about that. And he actually had uh, people at his production office dig up 
examples of like people, you know, the first written version of someone using, you know, motherfucker was in a mm. court trial that happened in the 1890s or something. But it's like the truth of the matter is these words did exist. People use them, but they didn't use them in the same way that we do. Sure. Like they're not using them as gerunds, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but who cares? And like Deadwood, you know, Deadwood doesn't really bear as much relation to what actually happened in Deadwood as as a lot of people might think. I mean, Swearingen, the real Al Swearingen uh, died. Um, there's some dispute as to whether they believe that he was uh, killed uh, trying to board a streetcar or in a rail yard. But uh, but he was uh, and, but he was definitely it looked like he'd been bludgeoned, although some believe he may have just died accidentally. But there's evidence that he was be basically his brains were bashed in in Chicago. And like I think it was 1909. And he had a twin brother named Lemuel, which I can't believe they never put this on the show. He had a sure. twin brother named Lemuel. Lemuel that would have been season Le four. <laughs> and, Le and Lemuel was murdered, uh, I think, a, a, a week or so before Swearingen was killed, died in Chicago. And that guy, and Lemuel was definitely murdered, and he was murdered in Deadwood. And, and the consensus was that probably someone wanted Al Swearingen killed, and they saw Lemuel in the vicinity of the gym and murdered him, thinking that he was Al Swearingen, but it was actually his twin brother. <laughs> you know, That's so there's that kind of stuff. And then, like, you know, the Joni Stubbs was not a there was a character named Joni Stubbs who was a a, a madam, uh, but she never got anywhere near Deadwood. Um, Lang Grish was in Deadwood from the very beginning of this of what would be the HBO version of the story, but they don't mm -hmm. they don't bring him in until season three. Um, Seth Bullock and and uh, Wild Bill Hickok uh, never met, mm. never met. They never met. They're bads. And in fact, uh, Bullock and Star arrived in town shortly after Bill was assassinated. Hmm. So this idea of like there being a kind of a, a bond and a, almost like a father son mentor pupil kind of thing happening between them. That's sheer invention. Uh, Alma Garrett and Brom Garrett never existed. E.B. Farnham is portrayed as this kind of sweaty palmed conniving coward. Yeah, but in real life, he was supposedly a very nice guy, like a respected businessman. And uh, George Hurst, who's an absolute monster on the show, um, by pretty much any reputable account, Hurst was like among plutocrats of the period, pretty honorable. Hmm. Like people don't have a whole lot of bad things to say about about George Hurst, like of people who had as much money as he did. Sure. You know, like if you made a ranking of like who were the biggest jerks who had that much money, he'd be near the bottom. But on the show, he's he's like he's snidely whiplash, like he's threatening to rape Alma <laughs> and he's, you know, cutting people's fingers off and sending the Pinkertons to terrorize the town. And Hearst never did any of that. So, you know, but who cares? I mean, this is right. like, you know, like I keep saying to people like to me, the appeal of Deadwood is it's 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 a dream of a Western. It's like and it feels like a dream a lot of the time. It gets it's the spirit of it alive. It gets the spirit of it right. Yeah. And also it's like, you know, it's like our town, you know, right. it owes a lot to our town and it owes a lot to, you know, John Ford's uh, My Darling Clementine and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Like you look at the way he films the action in those movies, both of which are Westerns that are very much centered around a town on a town. Um, and it's like it's this dream space. It's like it's a again, I keep going back to the Tempest. It's like the island and the Tempest or it's like a. You know, it's like Verona in Shakespeare or something like that. A lot of Shakespeare, play, you know, the comedies and tragedies have that feeling. Macbeth's castle and mm -hmm. the surrounding and the surrounding territory. 
um, that's what it's like. And David is a huge fan of theater and always has been. And there's a very strong theatrical influence. So it's kind of like a gigantic outdoor set. Like, you know, I realized deep into the research and writing process on this, that kind of what David did was that set at Melody Ranch, where probably 99% of the action is filmed in or mm. around that set. They don't go out of the town very much at all. No. And, and it's a lot of the action takes place indoors. And, um, it reminds me of, you know, this is kind of how Michael Cimino shot Heaven's Gate, notoriously. Mm-hmm. And and that was also a, a, a production that was kind of notoriously improvised. That's why the budget went through the roof. But also, um, the, the, do you remember Schenectady, uh, Synecdoche, New York? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's also kind of like that. It's like this, I mean, uh, are we supposed to, is Cinema Sins going to do a thing on Synecdoche, New York, where they complain about how un- implausible it is that this guy would get a grant <laughs> to do a play where he's basically employing and building the equivalent of a town and keeping them there for decades? <laughs> it's not supposed to be taken literally, and I don't believe anything on Deadwood is supposed to be taken entirely literally either. There's a lot of stuff that happens in that thing that's like, it's like you're watching a like a fable Mm-hmm. Like or or you're reading Chaucer, or yeah. you're, or you're or you're watching a Shakespearean tragedy that has elements of the supernatural in it, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, more TV should aspire to that, honestly. Like I, on a lesser scale, I love Winning Time, and that show's very anachronistic if you know about the NBA. And I don't care. Like I know full yeah, well right. that stuff didn't happen, but I don't care because it gets the spirit of it right at least. Which is what matters. Right. I mean, you know, my, my one of my favorite movies of all time is My Darling Clementine. And when I did the actual reading on what happened to all of those people, it's like, okay, this is almost nothing that happens in this movie bears any relation to what actually happened. You Doesn't know, and you love for it, though. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think he's trying to make you think that it did. And John Ford, you know, the, the, the famous quote is, you know, uh, uh, print the legend. You know, that's certainly what he did in his movies. And like, he's telling these uh, fables and like they Shakespeare often worked off of history uh, to, to get his original inspiration for his stories. But then, you know, Hamlet, the real story of Hamlet is, is uh, supposedly a little closer to the Northman, the the Northman, which just came out. (laughs) Right. You know, and that's, and it's like, uh, I realized about halfway, I don't think I'd done any, uh, a whole lot of like advanced reading about that film and the, you know, the, the material that it was based on. And, and a midway through there, you know, they're referring to him as Am- Amlet. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that explains why this reminded me of Hamlet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Shakespeare probably looked at the real story and I don't know if you've seen the Northman, but. Um, no, not yet. That's on my it, list. It's kind of great because like it's, it almost takes the same approach to that sort of epic revenge story as David Milch did with the Western and Deadwood. It's like, you know, his daddy gets killed by his, uh, by his uncle when he's mm-hmm. a kid and he witnesses the killing. It's very much like Conan, the beginning of Conan the Barbarian. And then he goes off and he grows up big and strong and he's ready to come back and kick ass and take, and take the kingdom back. And it turns out somebody else has come over and taken, taken the kingdom over and exiled his uncle. And now his uncle is, he, now he's living on a farm. 
And he's like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to go take the farm away from him. And right then, it's very <laughs> deflating. <laughs> but, you know, that's the kind of thing that David would do. And David David was constantly like whenever the actors and the filmmakers on Deadwood were trying to go in a traditional sort of epic Western direction, he would always tell them, no, we're not doing that. Do something else. Like, do you remember at the end of season two where Dan Doherty and uh, – uh, Johnny Burns and Silas Adams and Wu go to Chinatown to kill Mr. Wu's uh, adversary and his henchmen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So David was preoccupied with planning some other, uh, some other stuff. And so, you know, the actors were sitting around and they're like, we're going to come up with some ideas for the scene. And it was like this Arnold Schwarzenegger bloodbath. <laughs> All the ideas that they came up with were completely absurd. Like at one point, uh, Dan Doherty was going to jab a pitchfork into somebody and lift him up over his head and throw him. Mm -hmm. And, and David comes and listens to their ideas and he's like, no, we're not doing any of that. And instead he does something that's very kind of anticlimactic, like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Wu's rival is killed in an opium den. He does, he hears the assassins enter and he doesn't even get up out of his bed, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like nine out of 10 movies or TV shows would have had like Wu and his enemy go hand to hand and Wu kills him or something. And instead it's like he's killed by some, uh, by a third party henchman and he doesn't even get out of his bed. He's stoned and depressed, you mm -hmm. know? And that's, and that's, that's what made Deadwood so unusual was that they would make a choice like that. Right. Cause then in real life, that's probably how that would happen. Like yeah. You never get to have the huge monologue. You never get to have the huge cathartic moment. It's like, oh, well, he's depressed in an opium den. I guess. Yeah. Kinda... And a lot, of, a lot of the deaths on that show are very kind of pitiful. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. that's what made it unique. I mean, I it really, uh, no show has been like it ever since. I mean, there's been a lot of like westerns that have come on, like Hell on Wheels and stuff like that, but nothing that's ever matched the lyricism of Deadwood. And I, it's impressive. Uh, when, of the people you talked to in the book, who would you say were the big MVPs of the book in terms of your interviews? Well, in terms of like uh, adding sheer, you know, adding conflict, contradiction and entertainment value, definitely Dayton Callie. Okay. I can Dayton see that. Callie, Dayton Callie has an interesting relationship with David. He, he, he first met David before they worked together. And mm -hmm. in what he said, he describes in the book as a drug type situation. I don't sure. recall the details because they're a bit hazy, was what he told me. <laughs> and, and so he never had the sort of deferential sort of attitude towards David that other people did. And he actually says at a different point in the book, he's like, we were a couple of junkies when we met. Right. So he kind of would take the piss out of David all the time. And he often would say things to David in the presence of cast and crew that if anyone else said it, uh, the next morning there'd be a scene where the character gets dragged to death by a horse. <laughs> right so dayton kind of got he was like the fool to king to king lear you know mm -hmm. like like uh, the court jester or something and, sure. and um, so and dayton had a lot of issues with that dayton loves david adores david and he's very and he's very tight with a lot of the other key members on the show but he also is very very critical of david for a lot of reasons and and all that stuff is in the book. And uh, but in terms, but also, you know, I don't know who the MVP is in terms of like giving me great material because I think they all did. I mean, Earl Brown is is uh, all through the book because he 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 you know he worked on NYPD Blue. A lot of the Deadwood actors were on NYPD Blue mm -hmm. originally, 
but also Earl is an, is a writer and he, and he got himself into the writer's room and he ended up having credit on a script in season three, the catbird seat. So he's able to speak to it as a writer and as an actor and as a musician. And, and so he's kind of multifaceted in that way. Um, certainly Jim Beaver, who's an old friend of mine, like I got to be friends with Jim years and years and years ago, like probably 2008 or 2009. That's how long I've been friends with Jim. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I actually, when I, I have to review things that Jim is in and you'll notice that whenever Jim is in something, I'll always say my friend, Jim Beaver, I'll just go <laughs> up to it. It's like my friend, Jim Beaver, because it's like, I can't pretend to be object. I think Jim's a wonderful actor anyway. And I think I'd love him even if I wasn't his friend, but he works so much that I can't not review things. Jim, is sure. in. I never write about anything. That's how often he works. Um, uh, but also, I'd say Robin Weigert and Kim Dickens were just great. I interviewed them individually, and I also interviewed them together about the relationship between Joni and Calamity Jane. Mm -hmm. Keone Young was fantastic. Like, Keone Young has, uh, you know, he grew up, he's a, the son of a Japanese and Chinese parents raised in Honolulu. He was into the theater uh, as a kid in, you know, productions in Honolulu, and he and he worked in theater in in. Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. He was almost in the original cast of Sondheim's Specific Overtures. Wow. And, and he was mentored by Mako, the actor. And, uh, um, and uh, he had some great things to say about kind of a political and racial reading of Deadwood. And he was pretty unsparing in some of his criticisms of aspects of that. Like, you know, he basically feels like David and the writers did about as good a job as you could possibly expect a bunch of white people to do in portraying the Chinese characters on that show, but also he felt like there, there was a level of insight that they were never going to be able to get because they weren't Chinese and they never, and they never quite got it. Sure. So it's sure. kind of like, you know, uh, an A for effort if they're white writers, but it's a, it's a B plus by anybody else's standards. That's, that's what I took away from it. And, but he, he adores the show and loves David, you know, it's not like he doesn't love the show. Um, and, um, and there were a lot of people that were like sort of surprising, out of left field, great, insightful, like the comedian. Do you know the comedian Anthony Jeselnik? Yes, I do. Okay, so he was an accountant on Deadwood. What? He was, yes, he was an accountant on Deadwood while he was sort of honing his stand-up persona in Los Angeles, but his day job is he was an accountant. So he's on Melody Ranch every day, and he talks in the book about how he modeled his, you know, his stand-up persona as he's this glowering, shocking, destructive sort of attack comic, and, mm -hmm. he, and he said he modeled his persona on Al Swearingen. Damn, okay, that makes total sense. And, uh, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he had, he had, he had some really interesting insights into sort of some of the scenes and some of the characters and, and uh, yeah. And also, you know, just, and the Milch family, I can't say enough about them. They were just incredible. The level wow. of trust that they placed in me was, was uh, beyond anything I've ever experienced in my career as a journalist or an author. Um and there were many points where like they would tell me things. There were like one or two points where like, don't put that on the book, but it was only because they're like, it happened. This is accurate, but there could be legal repercussions if it's in a book. So there were like maybe one or two things that I took out, but like mm -hmm. every other thing, there's some stuff in here where you can't even believe that his own family would give the writer something like this. I mean, it was amazing, but it's very much in the spirit of David as a writer. Mm -hmm. to do that and there was one point where like 
Elizabeth Milch called me up. We spoke on the, well, we texted. And then I said, why don't you just call me? And, and basically it was about a quote of Dayton's. And I thought she was going to say to me, why is Dayton in the book? Why is he talking shit about my dad so much? But that was not <laughs> what she said. Instead, she just said, this one critical thing that Dayton said, I think there's another aspect of it that he's not seeing. And I was like, well, write me a quote uh, that that sort of puts a different frame around it, and I'll put it in the book. And that's what we did. Wow. Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's awesome. You never get that kind of access, <laughs> at least in my no. experience. That's no, it really was great. It, it, it was great. And I talked to Dayton. Dayton, I've, I probably did five interviews with Dayton. And, uh, you know, he there's so much material from Dayton. I could write a whole separate book just, just about the life of Dayton Callie. Uh, Leon <laughs> Rippey, also Leon Rippey was great. Mm-hmm. Leon Rippey was great. And and uh, he talked about, uh, there was some wonderful stuff in there, about, you know, the sequence where the Bullock Boy dies. Um, and... Uh, you know, he talked about uh, Ralph Richardson. Remember who played Richardson? Um, sure, sure. Yeah, he talked. There's a wonderful anecdote in here. I'll just read it to you real quick. Uh, uh, Ralph Richardson uh, was a background actor on season two who had been plucked away from anonymity by Milch and turned into Richardson, the grizzled man boy, flower child cook of the Grand Central Hotel. Uh, distinguished by his sunny spirit and blissful inability to recognize when he had been insulted by his boss. Richardson was supposed to be the fool to E.B. Farnham's leer, but the great twist in it was that Richardson's self-awareness was so much greater than E.B.'s, said W. Earl Brown. Ralph Richardson painted pictures as folksy and naive as, as his character's persona. If they were smuggled onto the walls of a second grade art class, you would never have known that they were painted by a man in his 50s. Leon Rippey was initially taken aback when Richardson asked him if he wanted to see some photographs of him with blow-up sex dolls, (laughs) but was both stunned and relieved when they turned out to be posed and lit portrait-type images of Richardson and his doll in ordinary domestic situations, such as dining at a kitchen table or sitting on a couch watching TV together. And, and Rippy says, you'd stare at the pictures, kind of wondering what the joke was, and then you'd decide that maybe there wasn't one. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to ask you about two more, uh, two more things before I let you go. You've been very gracious with your time, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, you know what? I'll talk, I can talk about Deadwood like seven days a week. I can't get enough of it. But thank just you. Two, two quick things. One, I want to ask you about your bookstore because that's been a very fascinating thing for me to watch from you because I've, I've bought stuff from your bookstore. Like a, I, I've, I've noticed Kenny's that. Goodwill's book. And we appreciate your support. Mm-hmm. Uh, what made you start the bookstore? Well, it was it was Nancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy's suggestion. Nancy said, uh, so you get an author discount, right? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, why don't you buy books with your author discount and resell them at, at whatever the price is on Amazon? And I said, that's a great idea. So I started doing that and people actually bought the books. So I started adding uh, books that I had contributed to, like books of essays or things where I wrote the introduction or something. And people bought those. And then I was like, well, let's add in books by my co-authors. So I started carrying books that Alan Sepinwall had written and those sold. And then I was like, well, I'll, why don't I start carrying books by people who are known to be colleagues of mine, like uh, Glenn Kenny, for example, we carried his Mad Men book. 
And then it just started expanding from there. Like, like what turned out, what I figured out was that I've been doing this. I've been doing this a long time, man. I've been a professional critic for 32 years. Wow. And, and an additional five, if you count the writing that I did when I was in college. And, uh, so I'm going on 40 years as a critic and I've got an audience and the audience knows what I'm about. You know, like not everybody likes the particular type of thing that I do, but those mm -hmm. that do, they know what I'm about. And they know that if I if I say, hey, this book is really interesting, they know because they follow me because I, for, you know, in some way my taste matches up with theirs, even if it's only in a small area, you know. Mm -hmm. So as a result, like I don't sell books that I'm not excited about. Right. Uh, or, or that I don't think that people who follow me and who follow and who are patrons of the bookstore that they won't be interested in. So that's why it's about the arts. Uh, most of the books are film and television, but I also have a pretty substantial uh, music section and visual arts. We have books on photography, and we also have uh, fiction and poetry that is related somehow to popular culture. Like we carry, you know, meditations in an emergency, which was used. We have an entire section of like books that were read by characters on Mad Men, for example. <laughs> and, and, you well, know, so that's kind of the thing is like, I'm sort of trying to branch out, like, what am I known for? I'm known for my obsession with certain things like, you know, Wes Anderson, Oliver Stone, Westerns, action films, kaiju, uh, science fiction, horror, uh, Deadwood, The Sopranos, Mad Men, uh, television generally, uh, formal aspects of things, music. I, you know, there's some people who, uh, shockingly, uh, don't really care about anything I have to say about movies uh, or television. They just follow me for the jazz links because, you know, yeah. my company family of jazz musicians and I love jazz. So we got a lot of jazz books. And yeah, so it's a very homegrown thing. And, and, uh, uh, we've expanded. We have, uh, we have, I think we have about a thousand titles in stock and we're, and we're adding more all the time. And, and, uh, and we have a publishing imprint, uh, MZS press, which the Deadwood Bible and, and, uh, the Deadwood Bible hardcover, the paperback and dreams of Deadwood, the photo book are all published by us. And we also, uh, we also have soaps, soapy Smith soap with a prize inside. We have, we have, uh, uh, themed uh, soap based on that character from the show. Um, and uh, But we're doing more books. We're doing a Walter Chaw's book, a biography of Walter Hill called, uh, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a critical study of Walter Hill, but uh, Walter Hill participated in it, you know, through- And interviews. he won an Emmy for directing the Deadwood pilot. He did indeed. So there's a connection here as well. But yeah, a Walter Hill film is going to be our next hardcover. And then after that, we've got a couple of other things coming up. I can't say what they are because we haven't signed anything with anybody. But we're basically what I'm doing, man, is I'm doing like the kind of books that I would love to buy, that mm. I would love to have on my shelf that a traditional publisher would never do because they think it's too idiosyncratic. The audience is too small, mm -hmm. too particular, whatever. Those are the books I'm publishing. I'm, I, I would be shocked if I ever published a blockbuster book that is like what they call a four quadrant hit. That's kind of not what I do. And 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 uh, very much like my taste as a critic, like I like some things that are very mainstream. And I also like some things where people people watch it and they go, why did you recommend that? What, what did I ever do to you? You know, Um yeah. So, so, you know, I'm looking to publish things like all I care about is, is it a good book? And do I want to see it on a, on somebody's shelf? That's really all I care about. 
And and we've got a few books that are like when you see them, you're going to laugh thinking back on this conversation. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that's what he was talking about. Like there, there's one proposal in front of me right now where it's like, I think there's maybe 100 people on the planet who would want this book, but I'm hmm. one of them. So we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's you awesome. Know? The yeah. last thing I wanted to say, I've always wanted to thank you for getting me into Bob Fosse. Like, I remember you oh. tweeted about all that jazz a lot. And so I finally, like, DVR'd it on, like, TCM. And I hadn't, I had seen Cabaret on stage, but never the movie. So I watched both of them and Lenny, like, back to back to back. And I was like, holy crap. Like, Bob Fosse rules. Like, I, and I don't think, I think you're, you, it's like you and Chris Ryan are the only two people I've seen talk about Bob Fosse ad nauseum. And I just <laughs> want to thank you because he's, like, one of my favorite directors now. Well, I'll tell you, there's two others that if you don't follow them already, you should. Julie Klausner, the 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 actor and writer and producer. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Is, she and I actually went to the Bob Fosse Film Festival together and we saw Sweet Charity in New York. Uh, but she's a, she's like four times the Fosse maniac that I am. Um, and then uh, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think who else it would be. Um, oh, I'll think of it in a minute. But but. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of Fosse fans out there. I think, um, you know, Mark Mark Harris knows a lot about that stuff. And, you know, Alonzo Duraldi knows a lot about Fosse. And, um, uh, yeah, but I can't get enough of Fosse. I mean, I, I think we still haven't caught up. Commercial cinema still hasn't caught up no. with what Bob Fosse was doing. No, every time I watch a musical, my like, guys, you could easily rent Cabaret. It's right there. You can just study it because nothing I've really seen moves quite like that. I mean, Spielberg's West Side Story does that a little bit, but I'm like, man, like it's like the camera is its own living creature with him. No, like, no, it's great. It's absolutely great. Uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 but I love uh, how he just jumps around, um, you know, all he jumps around through time in the way that a, a third person omniscient novelist mm -hmm. would. And you never have any trouble understanding uh, what's uh, what's happening. You know, like that's not easy to do. And you think about how many movies that do those kinds of quick cut flashbacks among multiple mm -hmm. timelines where you kind of lose track and you know what the right. hell is going on. You right. never have that problem with Fosse. And Fosse was making movies in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know. Mm -hmm. And and he was so like he really was taking techniques that were once confined to art house cinema and that would puzzle and confuse and infuriate people and making them comprehensible and making them like basically just another color, just another color in the in the in the pencil kit, you know. Right. And like um, with Lenny, I'm like, I'm surprised more biopics, like especially ones like about stand ups, don't try to emulate how he did the crowd scenes because like that, that's what makes Lenny come alive more than anything else. Like Dustin Hoffman's great, but like just the way he films the performances, I haven't seen anyone really try to do since. And I'm like, is he just lost the time? Like what happened here? Yeah, no. And he's great at that. And, and I also think for another director who's really I don't think is appreciated enough for his ability to do that is Fred Skepsi. Hmm. Uh, who did a cry in the dark and six degrees of separation and uh oh, okay yeah and uh but he's uh and uh the chant of jimmy blacksmith is another one of his but he's 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 fantastic and he he'll do a thing where like he can have somebody thinking steven soderbergh in the limey and out of sight and a few other films also did this really well yes. we'll have a character we'll have a character thinking and then he'll cut to them thinking He's basically remembering about the time he was thinking about something. Mm -hmm. And then they'll show you what he was thinking about. And then within that scene, some other character will say something about something that happened to them in the past. And then we'll see what they're talking about. So it's like you got a flashback within a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. And you're not confused. 
It's incredible. I don't know how they I, filmmakers like that. I don't know how they do it, but I'm I'm in, I have nothing but admiration for them. All right, um, the book is the Deadwood Bible, and I highly recommend reading uh, uh, Matt Zalorsite's other books, the Wes Anderson collection, which I love, and I have autographed on my bookshelf. Um, the Soprano Sessions, which he co-wrote with Alan Seppenwald, TV, the book, um, the Mad Men, the Carousel, which is about Mad Men, whole bunch of other books. Uh, where can the good people find you? Uh, on Matt Zoller Sites on Twitter, and the address of the bookstore is uh, mz worldstore.com that's mz as in zebra s as in sam worldstore.com and and we have different sections and it's a pull down menu it's pretty easy to use and we ship internationally awesome thank you so much for your time congratulations on the book i can't wait to read it and i can't wait to see what you've got next oh terrific thank you so much and i really appreciate your support over the years no problem happy belated father's day oh thank you so much bye-bye